Let's turn in our Bibles to Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. Our text will be 7, 11 through 28 this morning. We'll finish the rest of chapter 7 as we continue our trek through the book of Ezra and making our way towards the book of Nehemiah. Have you ever stopped and asked the question, how important is the Word of God to God? It's a different question. How important is the Word of God to God? And I'm going to proclaim to you this morning that God has elevated His Word to an unrivaled priority in the human life. God did this, not just man. God has elevated His Word to an unrivaled place of priority in your life. Do you understand that? He gave us His Word in the first place. He wouldn't give us something that we didn't need. He doesn't throw trivial things around. If He gave us His Word, His Word is a paramount issue in our life. From Genesis to Revelation, God leads His people with His Word. This is the instrument by which He steers His people. He did it first by speaking in Genesis, and by the time he had Exodus, he knew that we as man needed it written, and he gave it. And then he inspired men throughout the centuries and the millennia to continue to add to his canon of Scripture until he closed it after John wrote the book of Revelation, somewhere around 95 A.D. perhaps. Through all of this time, God has preserved his word. He has preserved His Word through invasions like Babylon invading Israel and Judah. He's preserved it through periods of exile where people didn't have the Word. He's preserved it through periods of neglect. Thinking of the time that Josiah discovered, his men discovered the Word of God lost in the temple of all places. But God preserved it through such. God's even preserved His Word through distortion. You look at the false teachers in Ezra, I mean in Ezekiel, forgive me, in Ezekiel, who used the Word of God to feed themselves and not feed the flock, and to distort the Word of God to get people to do what they wanted for their own sordid gain. But God has continually preserved His Bible, His Word, through all of this. If you look at the whole council of Scripture, God continually brings His Bible back to His people to bring about reformation. This is the instrument that he uses to recalibrate his people to himself. He's not ever grown weary of the word and said, that didn't work, I'm going to go to something else. Time and again, he comes back to his scriptures that he's inspired. This is even true within church history in the last 2,000 years. Yeah, there was a reformation in the 1500s where men were used by God to bring us back to his word. But even in these modern times, there are individual churches and there are denominations that need to be recalibrated. And God uses faithful men to come to such places and open His Word and proclaim and hold forth. That's how important the Bible is to God. But for some, the Bible really isn't all that important. We, we see this throughout church history. We see this in the modern days of the church. There are some whose view of the Bible does not match that of God's. 
For you see, God says the Bible is a heart issue. It is so central that we should write it on our hearts. That's the language that we get from God in the Bible about where it ought to be in our lives and the priority that it ought to have. Yet, some people view the Bible as if it were an appendix or a spleen, an organ that's optional and we can really live with it or live without it. We don't really know what it does. God doesn't view the Bible like that. What about you? What value do you place on this book that you likely have multiple copies of? One including an electronic copy that's with you everywhere you go. What value do you place on God's Word? Well, the the man Ezra this morning shows us that we must match our emphasis of this word in our life with that of God's emphasis on this word in our lives. And as we saw last week, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do the law of the Lord and to teach his statutes in all of Israel. That's the pattern that we are all called to follow after. And this morning, we're going to see from these verses, 11 through 28 of Ezra chapter 7, we are going to see the impact that the Word of God, the law of the Lord, had on the man Ezra, and therefore the people of God. So look with me. Let's read this text together. This is a copy of of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Quote, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem." with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem." Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. And the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury." And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed, 
by the God of heaven. Let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall be not lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Close quote. And then Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. It's an amazing letter. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing history that we have recorded right here. Let me just summarize a lot of this letter because we're not going to break down verse by verse the contents of this letter, but let me give you some highlights that set this situation into right perspective. The author of this letter is King Artaxerxes, a very pagan man who is not a fearer of God. He says continually through here, the God of Israel, the God of Jerusalem, your God, the God in heaven, but he never claims God for himself. So he's not a God-fearer. He does not believe in God. But this pagan is establishing the means by which the true God can be worshipped authentically by his people. So the author of this letter is King Artaxerxes, writing in 458 B.C. He is, by the way, a very well-known historical figure. There are artifacts from the Artaxerxes kingdom all over the world, including Philadelphia and the United States of America. This is a proven historical figure. Let's look at who he wrote to. He wrote to Ezra, the man that we met last week. He wrote to Ezra so that Ezra could actually have this letter as a ticket and he would take this ticket, and as we read in Ezra chapter 8, 36, he's going to give this to the king's satraps and governors of the province beyond the river. So Ezra walks into Jerusalem and hands this letter from King Artaxerxes and says, here's my ticket, let me in, and let me have my way according to the king's instructions. This is an important device that God has Artaxerxes provide to Ezra. The subject of this letter, the subject, as I've already mentioned, is equipping the Jewish people to obey the commandments of the God. And that required financial resources and it required freedoms of the men of God who are going back to Israel to lead them to faithfulness in God's commands. Another thing, you might see a footnote in your text, verses 11 through 26 are actually found in the original manuscripts to be in Aramaic. It's one of the rare places in the Old Testament where Hebrew is not the language that's given. The Israelites could read Aramaic because they were captured by Babylon. 
And the language of the Persian Empire was Aramaic. And so this device, this document that Ezra wrote is both in Hebrew and Aramaic. And Hebrew people could read either language. It's actually a sign of what happened to them that they even know Aramaic to begin with. Well, if we break down this text, we see that Artaxerxes makes five decrees for Israel at the hand of Ezra. I want to run through them very quickly. The first decree is found in verse 13. It's an open invitation to anyone who may accompany Ezra in his return to Jerusalem. He is not putting restrictions on who can leave and go home. It's wide open for all. The second decree is in verse 14. It's a, he gives Ezra to the right and the instruction to make a judicial inquiry into the faithfulness of the people of Judah towards the Torah, the law of God. Thirdly, we see that he decrees financial provisions in verses 15 through 23. And there Artaxerxes endows Ezra with unlimited financial resources to fulfill God's laws for worship. Number four, we see that Artaxerxes decrees financial exemptions in verse 24. Their tax-free existence is given for the spiritual leaders of Judah. They do not pay any taxes or pay any tributes at all to the king. They're tax-free pastors. And then lastly, number five, uh, Artaxerxes instructs Ezra to exercise judicial oversight in verses 25 and 26. And he is there to establish a unique judicial system that honors the God of Jerusalem. It's to come right from his commandments. And if people do not keep it, they are to be punished. And he specifies means of punishment. And he also says that people need to be taught the commands of the Lord so that they can be in a position to keep them. So we've just covered 11 through 26. (laughs) There's much that can be said there, but I really want to draw us in to verses 27 and 28 this morning. Look at verse 27. Ezra, after reading this letter, after receiving this from Artaxerxes, Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. He credits God. He doesn't say, thank you, Mr. Artaxerxes, sure do appreciate all of this. He gives credit to the Lord. He makes thanksgiving, prayers of thanksgiving to the God who inspired Artaxerxes to write this letter. So Ezra celebrates God who is merciful to meet the spiritual needs of his people by granting that his word would be re-delivered to them and that they would be called to be faithful to fulfill the commands of God. So in short, Ezra is thankful that God gave his law. He's thankful that God has preserved his law, even through the sacking of Jerusalem and the exile of the Israelites. And now Ezra is thankful to God because God is going to send him back with a letter from a pagan king saying, you let this man do what this man is going to do. He's thankful that God inclined the heart of a pagan king to decree that his word be embraced. Proverbs 21.1, all over again. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That's a repeating theme throughout this book of Ezra, and we'll see it again in Nehemiah. 
By the way, that same God and those same actions with the kings of the world apply today. No king is above and beyond God's sovereign hand of control. Well, I want to take us now down to the real main point of this morning's message. And it's the last sentence in verse 28. There we see that Ezra says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. That's the main thing that I want to focus on this morning. We could have looked at others, but I really think we need to see this issue clearly. Why did Ezra need courage? He says, I took courage. I'm going to assume he needed courage. And there was a state in which he existed where there was a lack perhaps thereof. Or the possibility for a lack of courage. And so when I saw that verse, I surveyed the rest of uh, Ezra 7, 8, 9, and 10. And I went and surveyed Nehemiah 8 where Ezra pops up and is prevalent again. And I said, what might he need courage to do? And I've drawn five things from these passages of Ezra and Nehemiah that Ezra needed courage to accomplish. Here we go. Number one. Ezra needed courage to approach Artaxerxes to make his request to go to Jerusalem with another wave of returnees. The mere fact that he would go to a pagan king and ask for a contingent to go with him back to Jerusalem required courage. I draw that from texts like this. When Artaxerxes starts his letter, he says, Artaxerxes, king of kings. Some royal arrogance right there. The Persian leaders often thought that they were the rulers of the world, and uh, at least for a season in history, they were, a ru- they were rulers of this region of the world, no doubt. And it went to their head, and they were quite full of themselves. Artaxerxes did not struggle with pride and boastfulness. And it took courage for Ezra to go to such a king who did not believe in the God that he wanted to take back to Jerusalem's his word. The king also had a court. Look in verse 28, right above where he took courage. The king had a court. He went before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. So I want to paint a picture here this morning from the Bible that Ezra had courage to go before the king and his mighty officers in his court and to make a request to go back to his people in Jerusalem with the word of God to bring about reformation. Nehemiah had the very same fear. If you look at Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, you'll see that Nehemiah says himself that he was very much afraid in verse 2. In verse 4, his solution to that was, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And in verse 8, we see that the king, Artaxerxes, by the way, the very same Artaxerxes, it's just 13 years later, the king granted me what I asked for because the good hand of my God was upon me. These men needed courage to interact with Artaxerxes on behalf of God's people in the name of the Lord himself. Number two, why did Ezra need courage? He needed courage to gather leading men of Israel to go up with him to Jerusalem. I want you to know, as a leader, it takes courage 
to be an initiator and to go to other leaders, other men and say, will you lead with me? I've already handled the Artaxerxes part, guys. Will you join me in a most important mission? It's the most important mission ever granted to such a man as us. We are to take the law of God back to Jerusalem and apply it to their lives. Will you come back with me? That takes courage to rally men to do the work of the Lord. It requires courage to assemble the right team, to select exactly who needs to be on this team. And then after all that, it it takes courage to lead leaders. These are all alpha wolves. They're leading men of Israel. And Ezra's going to have to have the courage to lead leaders. That's an intense calling on a man's life. Number three, Ezra needed courage to physically make the trip. Now, I think he's a young buck at the time that this is happening, so I don't think he's old and feeble. But there needs to be provisions for he, him to lead a people to physically make a daunting journey. Said last week, it's 900 to 1,000 miles from Babylonia to Jerusalem. There's some pretty rough terrain. Took them four months, the text says, to make this journey. That's pretty intense. That requires some courage. On top of all that, he's got a large body of vulnerable people that he's leading. If you look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 20, there's some, there's some head count and some genealogy given. And I did some quick math, really quick math, on the back of an envelope, so to speak. And I counted 1,750 men documented right there. Well, with that, there's also women and children that go. I don't know how large the contingent is, but it's a large body of thousands of people that Ezra's got to lead on a four-month journey, 900 to 1,000 miles. And we know from the text that it was a physically dangerous journey as well. Look at Ezra 8, 21. Over there, Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So it's a large body of people. We need safety and security on this journey. Verse 22, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And then in verse 31, The hand of our God was upon us, And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes. By the way, he had to have courage to lead a large contingent of people on a dangerous journey over a long distance. Number four, Ezra needed courage to engage in bold leadership upon arrival back in Jerusalem. His work had only begun to get there, but now that he's there, he's got to actually have the courage to lead. And Ezra, he's going back to Jerusalem only to discover that the people of Israel are living in tremendous sin. 
He's going to have to lead these people to acknowledge their sinfulness and to repent of their sin. That takes courage, let me tell you. Ezra 10.10, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Now just wait, we'll be there in a few weeks and we'll get into what that's all about. But these people are living in sin. It's marital sin as a nation. And he leads them to acknowledge their sinfulness. And he calls them to repent, to separate from their sin. That takes courage. That perhaps takes more courage than going to Artaxerxes. You go to the people of God. As a sinner yourself, and you say, repent, that's a dangerous calling. Number five, I see that Ezra needed courage to finish what he started. I'm going to tell you something. You can see a lot of leaders get up the gumption to go and make a bold request and make extraneous journeys through wilderness and hardship. And to deal with the confrontation of people along the way, whether it be the team that you're assembling or the people that you're going to minister to or to confront. But it also takes courage to finish the task. A lot of guys build up courage and pomp and ceremony and make the big splash on the front end, but the truly courageous ones finish the task all the way through. It takes courage to be a finisher. He led the people to repentance. We'll see in Ezra chapter 10 that he was successful in fulfilling his task of getting these people to be cut to the heart and repent of their sin. And they faithfully heed his words and the instruction of the Lord. He remained faithful to the task, even to the point that we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, where he's standing on a platform holding forth from the word of God. He didn't get to Jerusalem and then kick back and say, I've arrived. No, he had the courage to finish the work that God had for him. And I think finishing for Ezra meant death at some point. He worked the law of the Lord into the souls of these people until the Lord called him home. He never retired from the task. So it takes courage to set a course of action and to finish the task. And Ezra was a finisher, a courageous finisher. Okay, great. He's a courageous man. Man, we all ought to imitate, especially us leaders in the room, men. But we've got to ask the question. What was the source of Edra's courage? It wasn't himself. It wasn't his looks, his wealth, his assets. It wasn't even his lineage, and he traces all the way back to, Ezra, to Aaron. What was the source of Ezra's courage? Well, it's right there in verse 28. I took courage for... You could say, because 
I took courage because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. If you don't have the hand of the Lord upon you, you need to be terrified. If you've got His hand upon you, you take courage. But there's a follow-up question to that. So what was the source of Ezra's courage? Well, it was, the source was God's hand upon him. Why was the good hand of the Lord his God on him? That's the second question. And that gets us back to where we really, really need to be. So look at Ezra 7 verse 9. At the very end we see, For the good hand of his God was on him. And then verse 10, For, because... Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So why was the hand of the Lord his God on him? Because he set his heart to study and to do and to teach. I hope I'm showing you how important the word of God is in the life of a man. And this is God's prescribed importance. And last Sunday, we preached that thoroughly. This Sunday, I want to show you the results of a man setting his heart upon the law of the Lord. The result is courage. Courage. And the Christian life has got to be marked by courage. Every one of us must be courageous in our faith. Leaders among us, yes. Elders, deacons, yes. Husbands, yes. Children, yes. Wives, certainly. We must be courageous people. And the only way we get courage that will stand the test of the world that we live in is if we set our hearts on the law of the Lord. And if we study it. And if we do it. The Bible is a wellspring of courage. Psalm 119.92 If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. There's courage based upon the Word. You hear how vital the Word is? If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It was vital. Vital. So with that, I want to give you two examples from the Bible of courageous leadership based upon the Word of God. We're going to go back in time and we're going to go forward in time from 458 B.C., in Ezra's testimony. The, the first one I want to take you back is Joshua chapter 1. Turn with me there. It's a great passage of scripture that needs to be highlighted in your Bible. It's one that needs to be memorized. Therefore written on your heart. Joshua 1, 6 through 9. This is God speaking to his man Joshua, who is going to succeed Moses. Now, you just imagine how intimidating it would be to succeed Moses in leading these people who left Egypt and are making their way to the promised land where the ites are, the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Parasites and all these ites are there. 
He needs courage, and God gives it to him. But I want you to see the source of courage that God points him to. How important is the Bible to God? You're going to see it right here. God says in verse 6, Joshua 9, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's how important the Bible is to God. And that's how important the Bible is to Joshua. Because he does it. Look at God's instruction to Joshua. Be careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Do you hear in this? Set your heart to study the law and to do it and to teach it. Do you hear that? This is God's consistent message to us from Ezra all the way back to Joshua and everybody in between. Look at the results that Joshua can expect from adhering to God's instructions. He says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. That comes from setting your heart on the law of God. He says, you won't be frightened or dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you set your heart on his law and if you meditate on it day and night and if it doesn't leave your lips, your mouth, the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Do you hear? Do you hear here what Ezra says? For the good hand of God was upon me. And this is how God elevates the word into our lives. And we have Joshua and Ezra as tremendous examples of this. But there's a better one than that. There's a better example of one who led with courage. And the source of his courage was the word of the Lord. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Lord himself. He was courageous when facing temptation in the wilderness. Go look at that account. I think it's Luke chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. He was courageous when dueling with the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple. Oh, that took courage. Because at any moment they were ready to pick up stones and kill him. He was courageous as he approached his substitution for you on the cross. Luke chapter 9. When Jesus knows it's time for him to make his way to Jerusalem, the text says he set his face for Jerusalem and he went with Resolute courage to a place that he knew was going to be horrifying for him. He was courageous when he arrived 
in Jerusalem. In John 12, 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That took courage to say. It goes on to say, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John narrates this. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. His courage. He's courageous in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays twice. Father, if this cup can be removed, but not my will be done, yours be done. That took courage. How do I know? He sweat drops of blood. Because of the intensity of what was waiting for him and his realization of that. When he finishes praying, he says, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He didn't run. He said, Let's go to this contingent of temple soldiers. Let me be arrested. For I must fulfill the word of my Father. It goes with me wherever I go. He was courageous when facing Herod and Pilate during his trial. And he was courageous when he remained on the cross dying for you. Listen to this. Mark 15, 27. And with him they crucified two robbers. One on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. Wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from that cross. So the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another as well, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It took courage for Jesus Christ to stay on that cross because he could have come off with legions of angels. But in courage, he remained because he knew he needed to be afflicted for us. The cowardly thing would have been for him to come off that cross. It took courage for him to die for you. Jesus was a finisher, right? John uh, 19.30, it is finished, is what he said as he gave up his spirit and died. He's a finisher. He was courageous all the way through to the completion of his mission. What was Christ's courage based upon? Well, he set his heart on the law of the Father to know it. So he could quote it throughout all of his teachings and he could even quote it while hanging on the cross to do it because he is the actual embodiment of the word of God 
and to teach it. Because he taught throughout the synagogues and he taught his disciples by the way. And he taught us while he hung on that cross and died. Christ was a finisher. A courageous finisher. As was Joshua. As was Ezra. And as you must be. The Bible is a wellspring of courage. What's a wellspring? A wellspring is an original, bountiful source of something. The Bible is an original, bountiful source of courage. And you can only have it if you're in it. You can only have it if you obey it and do it. You need to be taught this, as do I. Biblical courage is a necessity in the Christian life. Are you bold and courageous today? Take a quick audit. Consider your ways. Are you considered, according to these standards, bold and courageous? If you're not, you need to check your engagement with the Word. If you're not bold and courageous, you are anemic in biblical iron coursing through your veins. And you need a dose of iron. And you need to read this. Last week I talked about many of us pledging to be faithful to read through the Bible this year. I urge you, I I plead with you, stay the course and finish that task. Because you're going to need courage this year. For what I don't know. I'm going to need courage this year for what I can speculate. And to have the courage that we're going to need in the moment, this has got to be coursing through our veins, meditating on it day and night. We must be doing this, not departing to the right or to the left. And this must never leave our lips. It must cross our lips, but not leave our lips. True courage comes from setting your heart on God and His Word, studying it and doing it, and teaching it. The most courageous thing you could do this next week is read your Bible. And then you're going to get more courage. Biblical courage is a necessity in the life of a church. I just made personal application, but let's make a congregational application here. Courage is a necessity in the life of our church. Christian leadership is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the passive It's for the initiators. It's not for people that are ill-equipped. We've got to set our hearts on this and study it and do it. Christian leaders must do this. We must study and obey and teach so that we're driving, driving this church from the wellspring of courage, the Bible. Churches are desperate for courageous elders to lead through difficult times everywhere churches are desperate for courageous laymen to lead in the day-to-day life of the church elders cannot do it alone but tragically we see many churches without men willing to lead laymen elders And I'm going to tell you the only reason that is true is because those men are not in the word drawing from the wellspring of courage. 
And so they're not courageous, and therefore they don't lead in their churches. And their churches suffer from it. I've prayed all week that this would not be true of us. We are in a season where courageous leadership is needed. Because the opportunity that God has put before us, missionally, in this community and around the globe, it's going to take courage for us to go with the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And God literally has us going to the ends of the earth and around the block. We need men doing this, leading in this. Ezra said, I take courage. True Christianity is a life lived courageously. True Christians are not timid. They're not passive. They're not uncertain. They're not quitters. They finish. True Christians are formed out of the same mold as Ezra and Joshua. And through faith, we're forged from the same mold as Jesus our Christ. So I challenge you this morning. Have the courage to pick up your Bible and study. And then have the courage to take what you've studied and do it. And then have the courage from there to take what you've studied and what you are doing and to teach it to your family, your friends, your enemies. Share the gospel. That's what I mean by teach it. Share the gospel courageously for the glory of Jesus Christ and the building up of His church. Let's pray.